Once upon a time, there was a family of mice who lived all their lives in a large piano. Often, the music of the instrument filled the dark spaces of their world with beautiful melodies and counter melodies and harmonies. At first, the mice were very impressed. They drew great comfort from the thought that there was someone close but invisible who made the music. They referred to him as the great unseen player. Then one day, a daring mouse climbed up part of the piano and returned very thoughtful. He found tightly stretched wires of graduated links which trembled and vibrating, producing that beautiful music they all heard. As he shared his discovery, the, the mouse began to revise all their old beliefs. Now only the unenlightened could believe in an unseen player anymore. Later, another mouse ventured even further into the pattern. He discovered hammers and, and numbers of them dancing and leaping on the wires, which caused the wires to vibrate, producing the beautiful music they all heard. So now it was a more complicated theory. But they confirmed their idea of a purely mechanistic universe. The unseen player was only a myth invented by the weak among them who needed a crutch to lean on in times of adversity. Eventually, more mice scattered throughout the piano and each returned with their own theories about how the music was made. They had seen leather, leather and felt and wood. Others had seen rods and leathers and screws. Their puny minds were too small to comprehend it all, so they concluded that no one really knows or could know the truth about the music that was made. They decided truth really didn't matter and that whatever truth worked for each mouth was fine. All that was necessary was to enjoy the music and get along. All the while, they gave no thought to the unseen player who continued to play despite their ignorance. Of course, it's a make-believe story, a parable. But that is the absolute picture of Western civilization over the last several hundred years. There was a time in history when everyone realized that there was a God who controlled the universe. Then there's some modernists to come along and suggested it was purely mechanistic view of the universe. Postmodernists sincerely believe that truth doesn't matter, and all we have to do is get along. Is that what is happening today with truth doesn't matter, let's just get along? Is that philosophy of tolerance working? The reality is the world is more divided today than I can ever remember being divided in my few years of living. Just take the political parties, for example. Within each of the two major parties, they are totally divided. The centrist, the right, the left, they can't get along inside their party, let alone with the other party. Extremists. All of those screaming for toleration have no tolerance for anybody who doesn't believe what they don't believe. 
The problem can be summarized very simply. They have ignored and even denied the existence of the unseen player. This world was created by living God. This world is under the authority of living God. And the only way people in this world are going to get along is to make him the Lord of their life. To do things God's way. You see, God has a plan that works. God has a plan that works. And doing God's plan is very good for me. But doing my own plan, not so much. A way that seems right unto man, but the end is death. Today is the day. That's the title I've chosen for today's message. I chose it because the words appear in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, as Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. Chapter 5, he talks about the fact we've been saved. We no longer know each other after the flesh because now we are new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And he said, besides that, we've all been given the ministry of reconciliation. We are in Christ ambassadors in this world, as he is so are we in this world, to, to go and to share the gospel that people might be reconciled to God. And then he comes down to chapter 6, and, you know, there was no divisions when he wrote that. And he starts that chapter, and he says, and I write this thing to you, and I treat you that, you work with the Lord and do not receive grace in vain. And then he quotes from Isaiah 49 and makes a commentary on the end of it. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. That's Isaiah 49. Paul said, Under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. In the context of being totally transparent with you this morning, my first inclination for the title was perhaps a little bit more in your face and to the point. I started to type, you have been warned, sign God. Or, I told you, I told you. With that thought in mind, I want to read the whole seventh chapter of Genesis today. Um, and so follow along as we read. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and all your household. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate. Seven pairs of the birds of heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days, I will send rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all the Lord had commanded him. 
Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the water of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. Rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his son, Shem and Ham and Jephthah, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his son with them entered the ark. They and every beast, according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, and every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. Those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, the waters increased and bore up the ark and rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, 20 feet, give or take. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land and whose nostrils were the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals, creeping things and bird of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. Those who were with him in the ark and the waters prevailed on the earth 100 50 days. Note number one, the flood really happened. The flood really happened. What we read in chapter 6, 7, 8, and 9 of Genesis is not metaphorical. It is not a man-made myth. The flood that God told Noah was coming really happened. Now, since the Bible is not a scientific book, but more of a history book, really it's the revelation of Jesus Christ, there's a whole lot of details that are unanswered. So there are scientists, secular scientists in particular, trying to prove that the flood really did not happen the way the Bible describes it. There are even some biblical-believing creation scientists who have a hard time comprehending how the whole earth could be covered with water to that depth. Remember what Isaiah wrote, God's ways are higher than our ways, as high as the heavens are above the earth. The flood really happened. There are numerous cultures around the world, 
who do not claim to be Christians, who do not have the scripture, but in their history books, you can find stories of a great flood and a person who survived that great flood. It's not just in the, in the, the book of Genesis, but there's other historical that you can find writings where cultures, they know one day there was a flood. God said, it's come to a place I must judge it and I'm going to flood the whole planet and everyone except those in the ark are going to die. Which brings me to point number two, God warned humanity it would happen. God warned humanity it would happen. We have talked about the fact that mankind became so sinful that it says God regretted or God repented of the fact that he'd even made humanity. His heart was grieved. His heart was broken. We read that, that every imagination, every thought of their hearts was evil continually. They had no regard for God, no fear of God. Sin had to be judged for what it was. God spoke to Noah and gave him a clear word. There is going to be a flood. I, God, am going to destroy everything that is living except the living beings that board the ark that you are going to build. We read last week that Noah was not only a carpenter who built this big boat or this ark, but he was also a preacher, a preacher of righteousness. We've read that in 2 Peter 2.5. Noah, what in the world are you doing? That's the biggest and ugliest house I've ever seen. Friend, I'm getting ready for the flood that God is sending because you do not acknowledge him. The only people who are going to be saved in that flood are the people in this ugly house. You want to come in? You want to believe? You need to repent. Obey God. Fear God. Walk with God. God anointed Noah to build and to preach. Number three, God gave mankind 120 years to repent. Since God is God, there could not then anyone accuse him of injustice if on that day that he said, I'm sorry I made it, he just suddenly caused the world to be flooded and these people to miraculously... He could have saved, he could have saved Noah and his family miraculously any way he wanted to. I mean, he took Enoch, he took Elijah. He could have just, hey, you're gonna come here to my house for a little while and I'll put you back when it's all done. But instead, he said, I want you to build this massive vessel. Peter wrote in, in chapter three, verse 20 of, of his first epistle, God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. Why? Because Peter wrote in another passage, God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. They had 120 years to listen to Noah's message. Number four, there were obvious signs the day was near. There are obvious signs that the day was near. 
Going back to chapter 6, verse 20. Of the birds according to their kind, the animals according to their kind, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. There was a, migra- a mass migration of the living creatures coming to the ark. You read, the, read that both chapters. Noah and his three boys did not have to go out and rustle in all the animals. God brought them. Seven pairs of all those that were deemed clean, those that were to be offered as a sacrifice, two pairs of those that are unclean. God brought them. God chose which ones to move upon. And they instinctively began to migrate. You say, is that possible? Have you ever read about the caribou migrating across the tundra? If you go to the Rocky Mountains, Rocky Mountain elk, they will migrate. The deer will migrate. Here in our hills, they don't have to go very far because the snow is not very deep. So they don't go anywhere except into hiding because it's now hunting season. But these animals, they become... They allowed themselves to be directed to their birth on the ark. I don't see any way possible for that migration to go unnoticed. Because it was not just a few animals. A Dr. Henry Morris, excuse me, calculated the ark would have been able to hold the equivalent of 500 livestock rail cars. 500 rail cars full of livestock. He figures, because of most animals are not real large, that there's probably at least 125,000 animals that could have been housed in the ark along with the families, and along with the food that would sustain them all for over a year. Insects, they don't take much space, and they could live on the other creatures. Just once you get a good picture, they all migrated. Seems to me, A wise person living close to Noah watching that should have said, good grief. Noah was telling the truth. Let her be. The ark was completed. The animals came and the ark is completed. Noah had told the people, God told me to build this ark and when it's done, there's going to be a flood. God said to Noah in the first verse of chapter 7, get on board. Come in. King James says, come into the ark. Verse 4 says, in seven days it's going to rain. The animals were coming, male and female. 
The building had come to an end. The family has loaded their belongings that they want to keep as they're going down the checklist of all that God told them to bring into the ark in order to sustain themselves and the thousands of creatures. And for seven more days, the door was open and they were on the ark. For seven days, the door was open. The animals had come on. The family has come on. Seven days, people watching that had the opportunity to say, I believe you, Noah. God forgive me. And they could have got on the ark. I need God in my life. But no one came. Number five, God shut the door. God shut the door. Verse 15 said, They went into the ark with Noah, two, two of all the flesh which were there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God commanded. And the Lord shut him in. And the Lord, and in the scripture it's all in caps, which means the I am that I am, Jehovah, the personal God, closed the door. When God shut the door, the opportunity for salvation was gone. The opportunity for salvation was gone. There came a final day, a final moment. Then the door was shut. Genesis 7 is proof of what Solomon wrote in Proverbs 29. A man who remained stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Without remedy. God shut the door. It was too late. The flood came, number six. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of heaven were open. Rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. Not a drizzle like here in the Northwest. More of a downpour like you experience in Houston, Texas. Or in some of the tropical countries around the world where they have monsoons. The rain fell. The waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. 20 feet deep over top the highest mountain. All flesh died that moved on the earth. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. God breathed into Adam and he became a living soul. But there came a day because of sin that those who were breathing that same breath were exterminated by God's judgment. Letter A, the flood was universal. It was universal. 
By that I mean it covered the whole earth. There are people who want to explain the flood with math and science. There are those who have written lengthy books to prove that there's no way that there could have been that much water on the earth because if there was that much water on the earth, it would have all been out of balance and everything in the soil, everything would have been gone. Um, 20 feet above. Do you remember how the Bible starts? Genesis 1, 2, we read, the earth was without form and void and darkness covered the face of the waters. On day one, God said, let there be light, and there was, and he created day night. On day two, it said, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let us separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the water that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and so it was. It was all water when it started. So, it appears to me that the flood was an act of deconstruction. Rain came down and water came up. For 40 days and for 40 nights, it rained. And then it said the water keep, kept on rising for 150 days. And then it took another 150 days for it to recede. They were on the boat a little over one year, one year and 10 days. When that water came with, do you remember what happened when Mount St. Helens blew and it slid down into, Silver, or down into Spirit Lake? Do you remember what happened to the Toodle Valley? It does not look the same as it did when we were kids. It's a whole, I'm in the whole world was changed when the flood came. There were no survivors who were not on the boat. There were no survivors who were not in the ark. Even if every mountain was not covered with water, but instead covered with snow, it would have been at a depth that no living thing would have been able to survive. 150 days before it began receding. There are those who believe, well, you know, they thought it was the whole world, but it was just the Middle East. And how do you explain fossils in the Himalayan mountains above the normal snow level of living creatures? How do you explain some of the fossils in the deserts of Arizona that are sea creatures. Just a thought. I don't know about you. Men can make all the assumptions they want, but the Word of God is good enough for me. The Word of God is good enough for me. There might be a whole lot about it that, that I don't understand yet, but I believe what God said. 
God washed the planet with a violent storm that wiped out every breathing creature except Noah and his wife and three sons and daughters-in-law, eight people in the ark, and a boatload of animals to repopulate planet Earth. So what can we take away from this story in chapter 7? How does it apply to you and I? Lesson one, as a believer in Christ, I am secure. The rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. The water continued to rise for 150 days. But when God shut the door on the ark, from that moment on, no matter how bad the wind, no matter how big the waves, no matter how hard the rain, Noah and his family were safe and secure. Because they had built the ark the way that God told them to build it, because he'd followed every instruction as God commanded him, God had given to him a plan that would not fail. And did you notice it doesn't say, and Noah shut the door, or Noah and the three boys shut this huge door? It was God who shut the door. God didn't put the safety of his people in the hands of people. He closed the door and he made it secure. I think of what Jesus said in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Paul said in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire the possession of it to the praise of his glory. If you believe in Jesus, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit until that day that Jesus comes. I didn't put it in the notes, but Paul wrote, Timothy, I know whom I believed, and I'm persuaded he's able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day, a place of security. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd, and he said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And then in verse 29, he goes on to say, my father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. In Jesus, I'm secure. Paul ends Romans chapter 8. Of course, he didn't know it was the end of the chapter, but he ends that thought line of thought with, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. As a believer in Jesus Christ, as a believer I mean one who's committed to be a follower of Jesus Christ, not one who believes up here, but one who believes with all of my heart and all of my life. My salvation is secure. 
I am in God's ark of safety that was created on a hill called Calvary. Lesson two, God has great grace. God has great grace. In chapter six of Genesis, God said enough is enough. Enough is enough. But in the midst of that, he said, I see a man, one that still has reverent fear for me. I'm going to use him to build an ark of safety. And I'm going to give mankind one last chance, 120 years more. And then there will be a final day for the ungodly. When Noah had put the last pint of pitch over the last joint in the boards of the ark, God said, all right, all aboard who are coming. And eight people began the process of the final loading. It was seven days before the rain started, but God told them, get on board. Here it comes. But of seven more days, the door was open. Grace was still available. Now, I know I keep repeating this, but think about this a minute longer. For 120 years, the message has been going out by Noah's actions of building an ark, by his preaching of righteousness. Now, Noah and his family are waiting inside, but the door is still open until the time God closed the door and the water began to come up and down. God has great grace. Remember the cross? The guy next to Jesus, I deserve death. He tells his buddy on the other side who's dying for his crime, we deserve this. But Jesus, remember me when you come into, when you come into your kingdom. Today you'll be with me in paradise. He entered into the door of ark of safety in the final moments of his life. Today is the day of salvation. Today, there's grace available. There's grace to be saved by and grace to live by, grace to die by. Today, John 3.16 is still true, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Today, Romans 10.13 is still true, he who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But number, lesson number three is this. The age of grace will come to an end. The age of grace will come to an end. There is coming a day when you'll no longer be able to call out, Lord, save me and be saved. Though it's coming a day when it'll be too late to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Matthew 25, which is a continuation of Matthew 24, which Jesus answered two or three questions of the disciples. One of them would be, what is the sign of your coming again? He told them they're going away. What will be the sign of your coming again? And in chapter 25, he said, the kingdom of heaven is like <clears throat> ten virgins who've taken their lamps and they've gone out to meet the bridegroom. Ten bridesmaids. From the outward appearance, they all look the same. 
However, Jesus said five were wise and five were foolish. And the thing that made the difference between wisdom and foolish is the amount of oil that they had in their little lamps that would use to light the path as they escorted the bridegroom into the house for the wedding. Now, the listeners in Jesus' day would have clearly understood the scenario. The Jewish wedding was a prolonged event, often a week or maybe even a two of joyful celebration. And it was a, a relaxed schedule of events. There may not have been an exact time on that day when the groom was going to come for his bride. I read where some believe the groom would come to the bride's parents' home for the wedding and then take the bride to his parents' house for the celebration and the beginning of the honeymoon. Others say it was the groom coming to get the bride to take his, to his parents for the wedding and the celebration. In either case, since it was usually late at night when the groom showed the bridesmaids who used their oil, their oil lamps to illuminate the path to their destination. Jesus said in his parable that the bridegroom had delayed his arrival. The bachelor party went longer than anticipated. When the word finally comes out, he's coming, he's coming. Five of the bridesmaids discovered their lamps were empty. They had no light. They tried to borrow from the other five, and the other five said, no, you can't do that. Go buy some from the merchants. And they go, and they find oil. And verse 10 says this, And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Jesus told them the opportunity for entering was past. The opportunity for entering the wedding feast was past. There's one major point in that story. And the next one that he tells about the master's goods and the five talents, two talents, and one talent. And it's this, be ready. Be ready. Be ready. Today, it's not too late. Today is the day of salvation. Today, the invitation repeated over and over in the scripture is still valid. You can come to Jesus. You say, Pastor, we're all believers. Well, those 10 virgins, they were all bridesmaids. You see, just going to church won't make you ready. Just being a good person won't make you ready. There has to be a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the invitation is given numerous times throughout the scripture over and over and over again. Isaiah 55 once said, come everyone who thirsts 
come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. And verse 6 of that same chapter, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Revelation 22, 17, at the end of the Bible said, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take water of life without price. Romans six twenty three, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Just as sure as there was a worldwide flood, Jesus is coming again. And when he comes, it will be too late to be saved. It'll be too late. Salvation's free, but it has to be received. It must be embraced by faith with all of your heart. True story. July 20 or July 2001, H&R Block offered walk-in customers a chance to win a drawing for a million dollars. Glenn and Gloria Sims of Sewell, New Jersey, filled out one of the, put it in the box, and they won the drawing. But when an H&R Block representative phoned them with the good news, they refused to believe it. H&R Block tried several times to contact, but each time the Thims thought it was just a scam. So they hung up the phone or trashed the special notices that came in the mail. Some weeks later, H&R Block called the Sims one more time to let them know the deadline for accepting the million-dollar prize was nearing and that the story of their refusal to accept the prize would appear on an upcoming NBC Today show. That got Mr. Sims' attention. So he decided to investigate further. A few days later, he appeared on the Today Show, himself to tell America that he and his wife had finally accepted the million-dollar prize. Mr. Sims said from the time this had been going on, H. and Bark explained to us they really wanted a happy ending to all this, and they were ecstatic that we finally accepted the prize. How many times has God sent you a message? I have free salvation for you and eternal life in a place that I prepared for you. Come and receive it. It's worth more than a million dollars. It's eternal life. It's my sins forgiven. 
It's the ability to stand before my Creator on the judgment day covered with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Don't brush him off anymore. Don't be like Mr. Sims or like the mice in the piano. Instead, trust the Lord with your life. Trust the sovereign judge of the universe who wants to be your Savior. John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Stand and sing.